0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're doing kind of two weeks, a little bit of kind of a mini-series of two weeks. I'm not sure it's classified as a series, but for two weeks we're talking about the theme of stewardship, um, and uh, next week, we begin a summer study of Philippians. We're going to move at a pretty good pace. We're gonna, uh, it's not going to be one of those studies where we go two verses a week or something, because we're going to finish it by early September. So it'll be a summer study, which normally we don't... Um, We don't orient studies around the seasons of the year, so we do Job in winter or something like that. But Philippians is a summer book, and we're actually calling that a summer study in Philippians. It is sunny, it is joyful, it is bright, it is warm. Uh, There's problems that are addressed there, but they're done. It's, It's just not an ominous book. Uh, it is a book filled with, uh, really filled with tremendous joy. So we look forward to doing that this summer. So we start that next week. We'll just do the first few verses next week. So if you want to open up Philippians, I'd encourage you to read the book through this week. It doesn't take long to read it. Uh, read it through so you can start getting familiar with the themes and then we'll, uh, we'll launch, launch uh, next week. Well, last week we looked at a parable. A parable is a story, not a historical account, but a kind of a story with a a point. And Jesus told the story um, about a guy who was very wealthy. He had a bumper crop, had a tremendous crop, tons of uh, produce from his farming, and he had so much stuff he couldn't hold it all. And so he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear down all my barns, I'm going to tear down everything I have, and I'm going to build newer barns, really big ones, so that I can hold all my stuff, and I'm going to say to myself, and he talks to himself, I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you have much laid up for many years, so just eat, drink, and be merry, take life easy, because you have have all this massive um, accumulation, and then the Lord says to him, you're a fool. Because this day, your soul is required of you. He built the project, stored all his stuff, said, I'm set, put his feet up on the table, and died, in essence, is what happened. And the Lord says to him, you're a fool because of a couple things. First of all, uh, you didn't realize the danger of greed, and you believed that life was made up of what you own, that life uh, is constituted by how much you have. And he says, that's not true. And he said, secondly, you didn't realize that life is short. So greed is dangerous because it can lead us to believe that my life consists of what I own, and that's a false statement. And secondly, it leads us to believe that life is short. He said, you didn't realize that your life was short. And so that is what we learned about last week. It was a parable of a guy who was foolish. Today, we're going to look not at a parable, but at, at an actual story, a true account of a lady that's just the opposite, <clears throat> just the opposite. If he's the poster child for financial foolishness, for stewardship, for, for, he, he, he stored for himself. He was, Jesus said to him at the end, you were not rich towards God. So he didn't care about other people. He didn't use his wealth to care for others, help others, bless others. He didn't give to the Lord. And uh, so he was foolish. Today we're going to look at a lady that is eminently wise, Uh, Because she is just the opposite. She is rich toward God. And uh, so we're going to see about her today. And what we're going to learn is that it's not the amount of a gift, but the heart of the giver that matters most to the Lord. When we think about giving, the man last week did not give, but when we think about giving, it's not the amount of a gift that matters, it's the heart of the giver, the costliness of the gift, the sacrifice represented in the gift that matters most. So Mark 12, uh, we're going to read the widow's offering, verses 41 through 44, but I'm going to skip up a few verses because this will play in, that there's a contrast here between the religious leaders and this woman. So let's begin reading in verse 38, and then we'll primarily uh, camp on verses 41 through 44. 38, Luke, uh, Mark 12, 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he, Jesus, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, when we read a text like this, we are uh, jolted. We are um, shocked, maybe, that, that such a thing would happen. Lord, we are challenged when we think about our own lives. And, and I just pray that as we study this passage today, that we would gain your heart, that we would gain your perspective. And I pray most of all that we would get a vision of you, Lord Jesus, and what you've done for us, that, that our management of your resources would be fueled by a great vision of you that our management of your resources would be governed by an awareness of what you've done for us and how much you love us and what grace and mercy and kindness you've showered upon us. So Lord, I pray that we would remove all barriers uh, to this text, remove all expectations, and just look at the text and look at you. And we invite you to speak to us. Have your way in us as a people. And we invite your Holy Spirit to challenge the cultural assumptions that we live in, the environment that we swim in, the air that we breathe, which is all about what we own and what we have. And we pray that you would reorient our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's a little context. The challenge of preaching a passage here and there is that we can sometimes miss out on the context. That won't be the case. In Philippians, obviously, we'll be going through a context. But let me give you a little bit of the context. This is the last week of Jesus' life. So he's come in. He's had the triumphal enter, ent, uh, entry into Jerusalem. It's, it's Passover week. And this, what we just read, is his concluding event in the temple. So he's been in the temple teaching, uh, bantering back and forth, uh, teaching and, and challenging the religious leaders and, and such. And he is now Uh, in the final event of the temple. He leaves the temple after this event. And it's interesting that his final event in the temple and his final teaching and his final lesson in the temple uh, has to do with money. And it's really not surprising because nothing perhaps is a better uh, measure of our heart than what we do with our money. Uh, I can communicate all kind of love for God and love for others. I can communicate all kinds of generous attitude towards others, towards the Lord. But it's really in the way I spend my money that is the core revelation of who I am and what I'm about. What I spend my money on reveals what's important to me. What really counts? What I spend my money on and how I spend my money and how I use my money reveals who's the Lord of my life in a very clear way. And we, we'd like to think, well, it's, I meant well and um, that sort of thing. But it's really, it, it's really how we spend our time, how we invest our, our talents and abilities, and how we spend our finances that really reveal what is important to me. And, and, and in this passage, he is contrasting the phony righteousness Of the religious leaders and the rich people who give a lot of money, he is is contrasting their phony righteousness with a humble, true devotion that is found in this widow in this passage. So, he finishes his teaching, he's been teaching, and he just sits down. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. There is so much about this that is countercultural to us. So much about this. Here's what's happening everybody is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Three times a year they came into a festival. And so all the Jews are here for this, uh, this great festival, the greatest festival, perhaps, uh, at, at, in Jerusalem. They're gathered for it. And there is, uh, they're part of Passover time was bringing in an offering. For the, at the festival. And so Jesus is watching people give their offerings. Now, they didn't pass a plate or you didn't uh, you know, give online or something like that. This is a couple thousand years ago. So, what they did is in the temple, in the court of women, which was open to everyone, every Jew, there was kind of layers that people could go and worship. There was a court of the Gentiles, and then the next area was a court of the women. So, all All Jews could enter this court, and in this court there were 13 receptacles set up. They were offering boxes. They were called the treasury. Some people called them trumpet chests because uh, evidently they were boxes, collection boxes, but they were collection boxes that had uh, something that looked like a trumpet on top of it. So it wasn't a musical instrument, probably a funnel would be a better way to say it. So they had some kind of a funnel, trumpet-oriented looking thing on top of the boxes, and people would come up to the various boxes and make their donation. Now, In the week of um, during the week of Passover, the population of Jerusalem swelled by a couple hundred thousand people. So Jesus is not sitting in some kind of you know out of the way place where it's sort of quiet. No, there is hustle and bustle. There are hundreds of thousands of people that are not normally in Jerusalem there for the festival. So this is an area of great activity. It's crowded. It's not like, oh, let's have an offering, and that took about 30 seconds to pass a basket. This is people coming in and making donations in these 13 receptacles in the court, giving their money. And he is sitting down, and he is watching it. Now, here's something we need to think about. Think about all the, the terms for money. If you're familiar with the Scripture, think about all the terms of money that you've heard of in the Bible. The drachma, the denarius, the shekel. The mina, the mite, the widow's mite. Maybe you've heard of all those terms. Did you ever realize that all of those terms represent coins? In biblical times, there are not bills like we have. Nobody writes a check either. Nobody's sliding their ATM card at the trumpet box and making a donation. These are are our giving kiosks in the temple. Uh, That's not what's happening. It's all change. So what we need to hear is that when the rich are putting in large sums, verse 41, that's bags of coinage. They're bringing in bags of coins, and when you drop that in the brass receptacle uh, that goes into the offering box, Jesus is not only seeing what's going on, Jesus is hearing what is going on, As well. And it must have been quite a scene. It's not secretive giving, it is open giving. And what we see in the passage is that Jesus has already told us uh, and warned us about the religious people who like attention. It's no coincidence that verses 38 through 40 appear right before the widow's offering. Verses 38 through 40 teach us that there are these scribes who are the religious leaders, the religious lawyers of the day, so to speak, who were wealthy and powerful. They walk around in long robes. They love to be greeted and respected. They love the attention of the people. Uh, They have the best seats in the synagogue. They have honor at feasts. They have money. They also devour widows' houses. They are religious leaders who have a lot of money that take advantage of the poor. So these are the guys that he's saying, be careful for these people. And then the next passages, a lot of rich people are bringing their offerings. Well, the implication, it's very safe to infer from that, that part of what's going on is that the religious leaders are making their offerings as well. And as they are dropping in large sums, it's loud in the trumpet chests. When I lived in San Diego, we used to eat at a, uh, sometimes eat at a Mongolian barbecue place. Um, And what you would do is you would select all these kinds of things you wanted to have grilled, and then you would take it up to this huge grill, and there was a guy there that would take your stuff and mix it around and, and cook it on this grill. And then you were inspired to give him a tip, and uh, because to the side is this little sign that if you give a tip, you're supposed to hit the gong. And so while you're eating at this restaurant, you would just hear the gong go off. I don't know if this is a tradition or something, but you would hear the gong go off, which is, which is acknowledging, I gave something, And I always hated that. I thought, I don't want to give and hit a gong. But if I don't give and you go through the line and there is no gong, oh, there's the cheapskate. You know, the guy's up here cooking his meal and he doesn't even care. So, like, I want to hit the gong so people will know that I tip the guy. But I don't want to hit the gong because I don't want to draw attention. It's just awkward, right? And uh, so that's kind of like what's going on here. You drop your change in and it's like the gong going off at the restaurant. Kent Hughes writes this. Uh, in his commentary about this passage, he says, The huge Passover crowds and the public display made possible by the 13 trumpets combined to create some outrageous preening and prancing. We can imagine the hush that came over the crowd when a notable person approached, perhaps with an offering too heavy to carry himself and audible gasps as the shekels crashed into the brass trumpets. Can you see their pious countenances? Their, quote, see if you can top that expression. The fashionable religious world of Jerusalem paraded before Jesus' eyes. It was in reality a world of souls in peril. Being able to do a good deed on a scale which is impossible for others can inbreed a delusion of superiority and safety there's a sense that I'm making this great donation. And so I'm safe with God. I'm secure with God. And he says, those people who are preening and prancing are in great danger. The crowd is wild. While well, it sounds like a jackpot dropping change is going off a slot machine jackpot. That's what it sounds like when they're putting their money in. A tremendous, tremendous display. I mean, can you imagine if you're an usher uh, Excuse me, Russia, can you help me? Yeah, I can't really carry my whole offering. Would you mind coming out into the parking lot with me and accompanying me? Do you have a wheelbarrow by the by You know, by the way, could you, so you can just see people coming in and carrying bags of coins for the wealthy, and they're dropping it in the container. And then he says, in the midst of this scene, verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins that make a penny. These were the smallest coins of the day. The, 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 the smallest amount possible. It's a minuscule gift. She's poor. She's a widow. Widows were, along with orphans, the most vulnerable people in society because there are no life insurance policies. Uh, there is no welfare. There's no social security payment. Uh, a widow would have had a very difficult, especially an elderly widow, would have had a very difficult time earning any money whatsoever. So they were vulnerable. Orphans and vid- widows were vulnerable in this culture because they didn't have someone to provide for them. She didn't have a, a husband who was working and providing. In that context, uh, 2,000 years ago, um, women wouldn't have been employed uh, as they would in our, in our um in our culture, where they could earn money, so she would have been very limited in what she could earn. So she had little or no income. Uh, she had no security, no insurance, no no uh, foundational protection for her financially. She was likely dependent on others to make it. And that's what makes her gift so amazing. He he watches the whole affair and. He sees her come up there after the rich are dumping in large sums, it says, and she drops in two small coins. Now, there's a number of things that are fascinating about this. One is that Jesus is just staring at people as they give. I find that amazing. I mean, we try to be very secretive. You know, like it would be be bad form if when the offering baskets are going by, the ushers are like, you know, look in each one. Uh, and passing it around a second time because <laughs> that would just be bad for me. Like, Man, you went to that church, they were staring at me. You try not to make eye contact and people are looking. You just kind of look straight ahead, right? We even have an announcement running so that you're not looking. You know, just distract. Just look up here at the guy telling you about children's ministry. Don't be examining what people are doing. We're very secretive. You would never go out into the, uh, in the lobby after the service. Hey, yeah, what did you think about the service? That was great. Why, by the way, how much did you give today? <laughs> that would be so awkward. Excuse me? What a rude question is that? That's all secret. That's all private. Nobody looks. Jesus stares, which I'm not recommending. No one in this room is Jesus. <laughs> so be Christ like, but don't sit at the edge of the aisle just looking, okay? That's not, he has that prerogative. You do not. So eyes ahead on Robert, Peter, whoever's up here talking. We're going to maintain the environment we have. But he's watching, and he's not only watching, he's assessing. Because he's going to call all of the uh, disciples over, and he's going to give an evaluation of the giving. He's going to talk about what struck him as God. And we know that God knows everything. We know that God sees everything. I mean, think about Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all, this is the NIV version, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account everything's open before God. We know that. We believe that. But there's just something stark. There's just something kind of in your face. There's just something, wow. He sat down the treasury and watched people put in their offering. He's just people watching. Well, how much they put in there? How many bags of change? He's seeing, he's hearing, he's observing. But not only that, he's God and he's assessing. And I find it a little bit, unsettling the reality that though we always live before God, here's a point in our life that we think is private and we think, but it's not private before God. He knows every penny that comes into my hand. He knows what I do with every penny that comes into my hand. And he watches and he's evaluating. Now, that's sobering and it should be sobering, but it needn't be ominous, because here's a lady that brought great pleasure to the heart of the Savior. Here's a lady that brought tremendous joy to Jesus, and a great honoring of God. He loves this. Second um, Corinthians 9, Paul writes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God sees, God watches, God knows what I do with my finances. I'm not just talking about an offering basket. Some people give uh, online or something like that. It's not just that moment. I'm talking about how we steward what we have, how we manage what we have, how we invest what we have. Are we rich towards God? These kinds of things. He watches, he knows, he sees, but it is, it, it's, while that's sobering, it needn't be ominous. It can be an opportunity to honor God. 2 Corinthians 9 says, He loves a cheerful giver, the person who gives with joy in his heart. God loves that. It's possible to do something motivated by grace that God loves. Why? Because when people give with a cheerful heart, motivated not by impressing other people, motivated by, listen, how this sounds, not that. Not motivated by receiving the respect of the religious crowd, but motivated by honoring God. When God sees a person whose heart is changed by his Holy Spirit, when God sees a person whose life is transformed because they have received the gift of eternal life from Jesus, when God sees a person for whom the gospel has made all of the difference so that the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has so affected them that they get it. And they say, what I have is yours. You own me. I've been bought with a price. It's a joy to give to you. I'm cheerful about that. When God sees that, he sees a life changed by the power of the gospel, and he loves it. Again, it's not the dollar amount. This lady gave less than all. And yet she is recognized. Jesus loves what this woman does with her two small coins because it honors him. And so the idea that he's watching is sobering but needn't be ominous or depressing. It can be an opportunity to say, Lord, I want to bring joy to you. Secondly, not only is Jesus watching, but he's evaluating and his evaluation is different than human evaluation. Verses 38 through 40, which talk about the scribes who like greetings, who like places of honor, uh, th- this kind of thing, who make pretense with large prayers. Th- the implication is that many in that society would have been impressed by that. So the religious prancing wealthy, you know, check me out, look at my robes, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I have knowledge of the law, I'm uh, seen as a leader. That, that, that person would have impressed other people. Jesus is not impressed. Jesus doesn't call the disciples over and say, wow, did you see the robe of the scribes? Impressive. Did you see the guy, the four bag of coin guy, the guy who brought in four bags? Did you see that guy? Jesus doesn't say he, he's just not really impressed. What everybody else can get excited about doesn't necessarily register excitement with God. Man looks on the outside, the Bible teaches, God looks at the heart. And so this woman who would have flown completely under the radar, can she hurry up so that we can get some people with some real money up here, you know? just She would have flown under the radar, but she does not fly under Jesus' radar. He he actually calls his disciples over, and he says to them, verse 43, truly, which he says at points, everything Jesus says is true, everything he says is important. But at times he says, truly, truly I say, or listen to this, amen, the words amen, let me make a strong point here. It's not like he said some things that weren't true, but when he says truly, he saying I'm making a strong point. Listen up, fellas, don't miss this point. Here's the point, guys. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, impossible. I didn't hear anything. Really? How is that? Well, she contributed, they contributed out of their abundance. She out of her poverty. She put in everything she had. She gave all that she had to live on. People value large donations. Jesus values costly donations. And those are two very different things. But they could be the same. For a really wealthy person, they could be the same. But people are impressed with large numbers. Jesus is impressed with a large heart. Motivated by the gospel. I remember one time I was visiting a church, and um, the pastor, during the course of a message, I don't know if this was planned or not, but actually identified a guy in the congregation who had given a million dollars. Pointed him out. So-and-so over here gave a million dollars. And uh, I just remember going, whoa for a couple reasons, like, whoa, should I know that? And uh, number two, whoa, dude gave a million dollars. Uh, so it was kind of wow on both factors. But it may not have been wow at all. I mean, if, if he had $10 million and he gave a million dollars, that's not near the wow of the unemployed person that had a $1,000 to their name and gave $500. That's much greater wow. Can be easy to say, wow, the guy gave a million dollars. Wow! But Jesus would view it very differently. If he had a million dollars to his name, wow. But Jesus is looking at the heart. He's looking at the cost. The, the slight little sound of two coins was much louder in Jesus' ears. He heard that sound. That was thunderous. And yet, bags of coins may have really not caught his attention because those who gave, he says, out of their abundance, they just contributed out of their abundance, but there's bags more at home where that came from. And yet she is staking her life on the Savior. She's really trusting God. She's really trusting God. They're tipping God, perhaps. They're the rich people, so they're tipping God, hitting the gong, and everybody's going, wow, And she is flying under the radar. You can't even hear her two little coins going in. And she is giving what she has to live on. It's fascinating that the account that that Mark records here is that she had two coins. That's all she had. Who would have blamed her for giving one and keeping one? She could have kept a coin, but she... She, she gave them both, and in some cases, it's not what the gift is. That's, the, that's kind of what's here going on with the, guy, with the rich people. It's not, the, it's not what they gave, but it's what they kept. It's what they lived on. It's what they, how they viewed what they had. And she could have given one of the two and would have still been worthy of being in the pages of Scripture, right? If she would given 50% of all she had and it was a part of a penny is all she had left... She'd, we'd still be reading the story and saying, isn't God amazing to move that woman in that way? We'd still say that. We'd still say she is an example of generosity, but she, she gave both. What one author said, in Jesus' estimation, the two copper coins were sparkling diamonds. The two copper coins were sparkling diamonds. Let me give you a few thoughts about how to apply a story like this. It's, a, it's an amazing story. It's a convicting story. It's a how-can-that-be story. It's a head-scratcher of a story for sure. Let me give you a few thoughts to apply this passage in our lives. Number one, God-honoring giving is a response to grace. Now you say, what? I don't see anything about grace. I don't read anything about the cross and resurrection in this passage. Think about the context. They're all giving. Why? What's the occasion of the giving? It, it was meant to be a reminder of the grace of God. It's Passover. The woman is giving what she has at the Passover festival. She's making a a gift to the temple during Passover. She's not there to earn God's favor. If Passover said anything, it's that you cannot earn God's favor. Passover is about helpless people experiencing the grace of God. Uh, Passover is about giving God thanks for his saving power. That's what Passover is all about. The Passover was the remembrance of when the people of God were enslaved in Egypt. And after a series of, of plagues that God brought upon Egypt because Pharaoh was resisting him, after a series of these, God brought judgment on Egypt because they opposed him and they, they enslaved God's people. So God brought judgment upon them and killed the firstborn of, born of every Egyptian household. But the Israelites were to take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorpost of their house. And when the angel that was killing firstborn came over their house and saw blood on the doorpost of the, uh, of the Hebrew families, he allowed their children all to live, so he saved them, why? Because of an animal which was sacrificed, and his blood placed over the door frames, they, were, they offered they gave an offering, and, and God passed over them and so the, the environment here is they 're remembering a history of when they were enslaved and could do nothing to free themselves this isn 't about if I give enough that God will love me better. If I give enough, God will accept me and I can have a relationship with him. If I give enough, God will view me as righteous and allow me to relate with him as if somehow we could sacrifice enough to make ourselves right with God. That's not what this is about. This is a celebration that God came to enslaved people who could do nothing for themselves and he gave them life because of the blood of a lamb sacrificed for them. And Jesus comes, and he is that sacrificial lamb. Here's the amazing thing. They're at Passover, and the Passover lamb's watching everybody give. Jesus is that lamb. Everything pointed to him in the Passover. Jesus is the one who in just days, really hours from here, will be giving his life as a sacrifice, the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He will die In the place of those who believe in him and trust him, he will be buried, he'll be raised on the third day, and everyone who puts faith in him will have their sins forgiven and receive new life. That's that's what the Passover event is about. Now, there may be religious people who are giving to feel better about their relationship with God, to be self-righteous and to impress others, but there is no self-righteousness in Passover. God doesn't say, I'm freeing you. Because you're so righteous, you deserve freedom. That's not what happens at all. He comes and delivers them because he's a gracious God, because he's a loving God, because he's a holy God, and wanted a people for himself that would worship him. He wanted to give them a land. He wanted to give them all that they needed. And so this woman, in the context of Passover, is coming and giving what she has. She's not earning the favor of God She already has the favor of God because she's part of the people of God. God honoring, giving is a response to grace. It does not earn. You cannot write a check big enough to pay for your sins. You cannot donate frequently enough. You cannot meet the needs of others. You cannot give your things enough to be right with God. There is one way to be right with God, and that is through Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, And died for our sins so that when we receive him and place faith in him, our sins are forgiven. And his righteous life is credited to us. So you don't give saying, hey, this makes me uh, in a right relationship with God. Giving is done because we are already in a right relationship with God. And if you don't know the Lord, please, if you're not a Christian, please know that you cannot be good enough, including making donations, enough to be right with God. It's a free gift to be right with God. So God-honoring giving is a response to grace that says, Lord, you have been extravagant. You have met all of my needs. You have met my greatest need in Christ. You have secured my future. I will be with you forever in heaven, new heavens and a new earth. You have forgiven me. You have paid the price I could not pay. You opened my eyes. You've given me a heart for you. You've done everything for me. You own it all. It's all yours. Everything is yours by virtue of your creation and ownership of everything, and everything is yours by virtue of your redemption. you saved me and brought me to yourself. You double own all that I have by creation and by redemption. You own everything. And so the giving is done in gratitude, in joy, in freedom. That's what I tried to talk about last week. There's nothing more enslaving than being enslaved to your stuff and your things. Or to be enslaved to the idea of, I need more, that's coveting. I need better, I need different. There's nothing more enslaving than for us to be tied to that. And there's nothing more freeing than when the gospel grabs our heart and makes us a cheerful giver that says he owns it all. Now I get to manage what he has to meet the needs of my family, to, uh, to provide there, to provide for others, to be a blessing, to be a giver. That's freedom, and there's joy in that, but only the gospel produces that. Obligation will not produce it. I can't read this to you and say, Jesus is watching, you better give. That that produces, that that has no power to change your heart. It's true, Jesus is watching. It's true, he cares what we do with what we have. That does not give you the power to be a cheerful giver. Cheerful giving comes from the gospel, changing our hearts, and then us responding in faith and giving, putting to death greed and covetousness and bringing to life the life of Christ, which is the giving heart, repenting and turning to him in that way. So God-honoring giving is a response to grace. God-honoring giving is not about the amount, but it's about the heart. That's really strong in this passage. God-honoring giving is a response to grace, but it's also, it's not about an amount, but it's about the heart. It's not about the amount, it's about the cost. It's not huge giving, it's costly giving. And that's proportional. That is based on what we have. That's based on what we keep. Uh, do you think that her contribution really made any difference in the temple? Less than a penny. It's like, well, we're going to put on a new wing on the temple. And man, she, she took us over the top. You think, you think her donation really made a difference in the grand scheme of things, meeting a need that God had? He, he didn't need her money. By the way, God didn't need the guys with bags of money's money either. They probably thought, we're doing God a big favor. He owns everything. He didn't need their money. He didn't need the widow's money. God's not in need. He owns everything. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need your money. It's not like God is wringing his hands. The whole kingdom is on hold until he can find a few investors to buy into. The, look at the prospectus he offers. Let's get a few people to buy in and then God will be okay. God doesn't need that. God doesn't need that. It's not like a bigger amount is gonna help God fulfill his purposes. He will build his church and nothing will stop Him, the gates of hell, will not hinder God. God will do what God wants to do. He's not interested in large amounts. He's interested in hearts transformed by the gospel, devoted to Him freely and joyfully, faithfully, regularly, giving. That's what He's blessed by. The the profound lesson for the disciples here is about the costliness of devotion as a response to what God has done in the Passover for them and in Jesus for us. God wants people who really believe that life is found in him. God's building a people who believe, not like the rich fool, that my life is found in the abundance of what I possess. That's the rich fool. Life is about what do I own? What do I get? What can I achieve? Life is found in Jesus The richest person is the person we said last week who's content with what they have, with what the Lord's provided. That's the richest person. There are many people with tons of wealth that are dissatisfied and always looking for more. That's poverty. Wealth is the person who is fulfilled in Christ, who is free in Jesus, who isn't chained to their stuff, but is free to manage and steward and distribute. And to use what God has provided. God wants a people whose heart, he's after our heart. If I can add a few more zeros on my check, it doesn't really help God out. God's looking for a people that are living according to the power of the gospel that are affected by the gospel, so that when people see his church, they see his people, they see sacrificial people, they see giving people, they see people who put their faith in him. It takes faith to say, to to act on this, it takes faith to say, my life is in Christ, he will provide. That takes tremendous faith. It doesn't take much faith for me to say it, it takes tremendous faith for me to live. Accordingly, and so God honoring giving is not about the amount; it's about the heart. It's not about the size of the gift; it's about the costliness of how we give and what we do with what we have. Listen, I know we announced Financial Peace University this morning. I didn't prepare these two sermons uh, as a you know as an introduction to that class or something like that. It's not the main reason we're talking about this, but. Uh, but it w- that's a place where you can get tremendous help. Just getting a perspective. So if you need help in any area of your finances, I just encourage you to to participate in the class. I guess it starts this Thursday. But it's a way that you can that that you can have your thinking challenged, um, the world's thinking challenged, I should say. I don't know what your thinking is. The world's thinking, which is challenges us. You can have that challenged and be equipped to manage what you have and to use it for God's glory, so that you you're able to. Live cheerfully and freely. So that class will help all of us, any of us that take that. So God-honoring giving is a response to grace. God-honoring giving is not an amount, about an amount, it's about a heart. And here's, the really, here's some good news in all this as well. God-honoring giving is available to us all. I, that, that's a beautiful thing. It, if, if you look at the temple and you evaluate with human evaluation, you would probably say, wow, those guys are really pleasing the Lord who are giving a lot and I can't do that. And Jesus isolates perhaps the poorest person in the temple that day. He isolates the person everybody had more than her. Everyone could do make a greater contribution than her, yet she is the one that blesses the Lord and is highlighted in this. It's not that the Lord is opposed to large gifts. He, he's, he's saying here he's opposed to self-righteous tipping, and hitting the gong. That, he's, opposed to that. he's opposed to people who give a tip, but it, it, it doesn't challenge their faith. It doesn't stretch them. It doesn't call them to lean on him. I'm still very secure in all that I have. I'm not challenged to make any life change. I'm not challenged to depend on the Lord. I'm not challenged by faith. I'm not challenged with any of that. I'm not challenged to say, wow, if I'm going to be faithful in this way, I've got to learn how to manage what I have. It doesn't challenge. So he's not honored by those who there's nothing, there's no cost to it like them. He's not opposed to the large gift. He's just not honored by giving that doesn't spring from a a heart changed by the gospel. And by faith. So no matter where you are today, if you're unemployed, if you're underemployed, If you're hurting in some way financially, this passage doesn't hold something out in front of you and say, hey, good luck. You'll probably never be in the top giver's club that's blessing the Lord. You'll never be highlighted. You'll never have your name on the plaque out there. We we don't have plaques out there, but if we did, we're not going for plaques. But you'll never have your name. You'll never be in the gold club, the silver club, the bronze club, in the alumni magazine about who made the donation. You'll never be there. Too bad. No, no. Anybody motivated by grace can be a cheerful giver and honor the Lord. Bring great honor to Him. A kid can do that. And I wonder if the Lord at times isn't more blessed by the kid that gives his whole allowance. That's a comparable story than, than the wealthy adult that tips God. You don't have to have a lot to, to honor the Lord you will have to have a few things. you have to be intoxicated with grace. You have to be affected by the gospel in such a way that there's a freeing generosity that comes to your soul. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you're not familiar, sometime I need to teach you those chapters. I've, I've taught a message or two over the years from there, but if we ever go through the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9 are really key because in that passage, Paul is basically making the point that one of the primary Demonstrations that a heart has been gripped by grace is a freedom and a joy in giving. Not legalism. You, you can give legalistically, I can but that's, as well. But as somebody says, it's really when a heart's gripped by grace, there's an open handedness, there's a joy, and there's a freedom. That's what grace does in a person. So we can all, no matter what our background, no matter what our financial position, we can all be intoxicated with the grace of God. We can all have Jesus' work transform our hearts. Every one of us, no one's penalized by our resources. That's one of the really encouraging things here. The least likely person to make a difference with her donation because of its minuscule amount is the person that honors the Lord in the passage. So that's good news to us. But we'll have to have grace (laughs) gripping our heart. We'll have to be diligent. We'll have to have a plan. We'll have to be aware of what we have to know what we can give. We have to be a faithful manager. We'll have to exercise faith, grace which leads to faith. We'll have to exercise faith to honor the Lord, but anybody, any of his children can do so. God is watching and God is honored when we're changed into his image by the gospel and we give in a costly manner as worship to him, motivated by grace and joy. It's a challenging story, but it's a story that really should fix our eyes on Jesus, asking him to change our hearts so that we give, motivated by grace, not to pay him back, but because he has freed us, not with a certain amount, but with a costliness to the amount we give, and realizing that this is available to us all. And so repentance in this area probably looks like a few things. One is, we said last week, the first thing I mentioned is ask the Lord to give us a mindset of the scripture and not the culture, because the culture 24-7 tells us something different, especially this culture. Every culture does, but especially Frisco culture. That there's, there's, a, there's a few people with a few things in this culture, and it shouts out to us, you need this to be happy. And the Bible shouts out to us, you need Jesus to have joy. Your life is found in him. And your joy is found in giving. That's where there's great joy. So we need him to change our mind. And then we need to just be diligent as well in response to have some kind of plan. And that's why the timing of this is ideal with financial peace. I just encourage you to jump in there if uh, if you can. And then last week, as I said, we just start with by taking a step. Hey, w- I mean, this, this lady is extremely mature. Extremely mature. Um, she's... She's going for it. She's laying it out there and saying, I trust God for everything. So you don't walk out of here and go, well, I gotta, if, I can't, if I can't divest myself of it all by next Sunday, well, that's not going to happen, so I'm not going to do anything. No, we just take a step. Lord, where do you want me to go next? How do you want me to participate? What's the next step for me? For some of us, it's getting on a budget. For some of us, it's just starting to be faithful, just starting right next Sunday, right today, whenever I'm going to start to be faithful. Give. For some of us, it's asking the Lord, Lord, what are you calling me to do, and being stretched. I mentioned a lot of ways we can do this last week, whether it's extending hospitality, or whether it's funding, um, starting with faithful funding in our local church, or maybe it's, uh, it's funding in addition to that, ministry to the nations, or something like that. Any many ways that we give, many ways that we do that. But God's calling us to just take our next step in trusting Him. You don't end up at the widow in her heart by next Sunday. We just ask the gospel, God's gospel, to touch our hearts. Ask Him through the gospel to touch our hearts and take us toward the next step, trusting and honoring Him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.